This podcast is brought to you by the Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. Your host is editor Mike King, and this episode is kindly supported by Fordo. Shipping products as easy as sending emails. Welcome back to the Lodestar podcast. While we've been away, all things freight and shipping have gone mainstream. U.S. exporters are crying foul as the price of shipping containers spikes. The cost of shipping goods from China has hit record highs. 99% of everything that comes in and goes out of Australia is by sea. Shipping is our lifeblood, and at the moment, it's hemorrhaging. This jam-packed episode features the Lodestar's Mike Wackett, Porto's Eric Reuter, and happy chower to OEC. We'll be analysing yet more freight rate inflation, port and airport shutdowns in Asia, the latest M&A deals, and how carriers are favouring the biggest shippers and ever longer contracts. I'll also be asking Jeffrey's analyst Randy Givens how markets are reacting to record profits and where all that extra cash will be spent. And just because we can, in an exclusive interview, we have a freight buyer's perspective from James Hookham, the outspoken director of the Global Shippers Forum. I think it's gone past a crisis, Mike. I think this is a full-blown catastrophe. I think the coming peak season is going to be devastating for a lot of particularly smaller manufacturing and importing businesses. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Now, before I introduce my co-host, just a quick bit of housekeeping if you wanted to jump to our analysis of Q2 results with Jeffrey's Randy Givens, you'll find that at minute 22.30 or thereabouts. My in-depth interview with James Hookham, director of the Global Shippers Forum, starts about 34 minutes. And if you want to receive future episodes of the Lodestar podcast straight to your inbox, which of course I'm sure you do, please sign up at thelodestar.com forward slash podcasts and with no further ado it is my pleasure to be joined for the first time on the lodestar podcast by our resident shipping guru hello mike wackett how are you i'm great uh, and and great to be on the on the poddy on the lodestar poddy mike we just heard those media reports at the start of this podcast now as a seasoned container shipping reporter and rather uniquely being able to draw on your own previous experience as a well-known liner executive, can you recall shipping and logistics ever being quite so mainstream? And just to put that question into context, my kids have been asking me to explain empty shop shelves and whether this is to do with shipping or shortages of truck drivers. I, I, I really don't think so. I mean, not in my 40 odd years in the line industry. Um, I think the supply chain, it's like most things in life. If it works, nobody notices. I think we've become so used to going to the store or clicking online and getting exactly what we want uh, and when we want it. And we sort of barely notice that sort of made in China sign on the box or whatever and think about how it got across 10,000 odd miles of, of ocean. I mean, there was... Um, a manager at the store that we went to in the summer, I mean, he explains to me that he, he didn't know when the barbecue that I wanted would be in stock as the delivery was apparently still stuck on the ship in the Suez Canal. It was about half an hour later, I had to be dragged away by my wife as I was still trying to explain to him the complexities of the supply chain. I mean, it, it really is one of those things that you do not notice and you get so used to taking for granted. Yeah, it really has become part of everyday life. You mentioned so much is produced in, in Asia and Asia has been, when people have been talking about shipping in crisis, Asia has been right central to that. Earlier this year, we had Yanchan. More recently, we've had more COVID lockdowns, which has affected port productivity at major terminals and airports, adding to that supply chain disruption that has been building basically over the last year and more now. In a moment, we'll be hearing from Forto's Eric Reuter in Hong Kong for an insight into the current state of play there. But Mike, can you just give me a quick update on container shipping spot freight rates? Are we still seeing hikes and more GRIs as peak season really hits its stride? I think um, I think that they some would think that they've gone as high as they could, really. I mean, one thing's for certain, they're not coming down anytime soon. The Asia-US spot rate component of the 
Freitas Baltic Index is more than five times higher than a year ago. It's, a, it's an eye-watering $18,000 to $20,000 of 40-foot. And that's if you're lucky enough to get a box and a slot on the ship. But even then, your troubles are not over. The, the, the ship will join a long line of 40-odd vessels waiting to berth off of Los Angeles. And then it can take a couple of weeks to get the box off the berth. And if you want to go inland, you might just be there for Christmas. And that's not necessarily Christmas of this year. Um, I mean, shippers from Asia to North Europe are feeling the same pain. The FBX component is off the scale. Spot rates are around eight times higher than a year ago at around $15,000 a 40 foot. And that's if you're lucky. Mike, on that note, let me bring Eric Reuter, who's the VP for Asia at Forto in. He's dialing in from Hong Kong. Hello, Eric. Hi, how are you doing? Very good, very good. Eric, the Lodestar has been covering the various lockdowns at ports in Asia due to COVID outbreaks this past month and more, in fact. How damaging have the operational disruptions at Ningbo in central China and also at Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam been in terms of delays in scheduling when these supply chains are already rather stressed anyway? What's the situation at the moment? The Ningbo terminal closure at, at Meishan terminal has affected pre pretty much all of us in terms of freight forwarders and shipping lines at the same time. But um, lucky enough now, uh, all operations resu resume back to normal, right? So uh, at this time, finally, the backlog is going to be cleared. What we have, of course, tried to do is to divert as, as many uh, TUs as possible uh, to the other terminals, which were still operating. We, we were in close contact with, with our major shipping lines in order to, to make that happen. And uh, we can say thank you also to the flexibility of the, the various port operators in the Ningbo area who did a, a quite good job, I can say, in order to get the, the backlog not pile up too much. Okay, but nevertheless, it affected us and it affected probably the rest of, of our competitors as well. Overall, I think we, we're moving in the right direction. In Vietnam, it's, it's slightly different. A terminal is one issue. The other big issue in Vietnam is at the moment the total lockdown of uh, two weeks, uh, possibly extended by another two weeks now um, in terms of movement control. Government took over. People have to stay at home. Uh, you're not even allowed to go to supermarkets. So factories are closed. That means also goods can't be delivered to the ports. So there will be additional heavy delays to be expected. Um, what I can see today in terms of backlog, Vietnam has improved a little bit, at least what I can see with the shippers we are dealing with. But overall, we expect this is going to, to last probably until mid or even end of September in this current situation. Will there be a domino effect with both these disruptions in Asia, whereby the way that the schedules have been affected, will we start seeing the impact of that? It's like a ripple effect. Well, we, we do expect certain ripple effects, and, and you can feel some of them, especially in Ningbo already today, but it won't be that, um, let's say, that harsh as it was during the, the Suez Canal crisis, okay? But on the other hand, it shows us also how volatile the, the system can be. Um, we, we have currently the possibility of strikes in Korea, right? Unions are preparing strikes there. So there could be the next, let's say, disruption happening. So the overall supply chain is definitely currently disrupted. And it's it's going to take time to come back to normal here, be it now on the from the carrier side uh, with equipment and, and, and high rates, of course. Equipment shortage is still a big issue. To what extent of these more recent ocean scheduling problems and or productivity issues in central China and in Vietnam, to what extent have they prompted a shift to air freight and certainly in China? How possible has that been with capacity reductions for freighters at uh, Shanghai Pudong Airport, for example? Yeah, we saw certain commodities have shifted towards the air freight and especially, let's say, time consuming, time critical products which usually went by sea freight have been shifted. We, we had a, a few shippers who uh, basically cancelled a couple of containers by sea and then shifted the, the whole cargo into air freight. So on the other hand, of course, as you rightfully said, I mean, space-wise, there is not enough available. Then you had another COVID case also in Pudong, which caused closures, then cargo was diverted, then to Guangzhou and to other airports, Nanjing area, and so on and so forth. 
and there is a, is, is quite a bit of a disruption. Okay, so you, you need to be quite flexible in this regard at the moment and need to have a very close relationship with your carriers, no matter is AOC. And what do these air and ocean problems that we're talking about, and you, you did raise some interesting points there about there's possibly more in the pipeline, even maybe in Korea. What does all this mean for the holiday peak season shipping deadlines by air and by ocean? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we haven't seen any summer dip for us, at least um, uh, this year. So usually during this time of the year, it's a bit slower, but it's it's not at all. And the next peak seasons are in front of us, right? I mean, look at the golden week is coming. Uh, then you have a couple of Black Fridays, which is currently now a global thing and, and not just an English thing anymore, right? So, and then of course, Christmas uh, is also approaching. So what I always say, you have to, you have to stick to the six piece which is proper planning prevents piss poor performance, right? <laughs> so the planning is is becoming more and more important. And then also the, the accuracy in terms of delivering what you have promised, um, be it now to us as a, as a forwarder and then from our side then also towards the shipping lines. Because shipping lines nowadays are really honoring those freight forwarding companies and those shippers, those BCO shippers, which try to stick to what they promised so that they have a proper capacity planning. So capacity planning is probably the key at this stage. I think, Eric, from a shipper's point of view, presumably from what you've said, there's not much chance of prices declining and possibly they might increase at some point as we head towards that holiday season. But uh, is the capacity there now? Are we already getting to the stage where you'd be worried about people receiving their cargo for Christmas, for example? Or when's the cutoff deadline for that? certainly by ocean. Yeah, well, I mean, capacity is is not as good as it could be, as we, we would need it and the market would need it. So there will be a shortage ongoing, I would guess, probably until Chinese New Year next year. We are all hoping that the situation will ease by then. But prior to that, I personally don't expect declining rates, rather increasing rates again on all modes of transport. Um, we can see that today also on the rail product, which we are trying to to offer now as alternative for various shippers, especially out of China. Trains are full. We we have block space agreements, full train um, allotments, um, which are fully booked until end of October, beginning of November already. So um, I personally um, expect that there will be still a, quite a bit of a shortage in terms of equipment until February next year. But people can get their cargo in time for that sort of November cutoff period. Well, coming back to the six Ps, right? You 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 need to you need to to plan way ahead, and you need to be willing to pay certain price levels, right? Um, you have to plan long term nowadays, and um, shipping lines are now favoring uh, yearly or even two year deals. What what we are discussing now internally. Um, so there are alternatives and there are options on the table. We we try to be as transparent as possible towards the client in order to really do this together as a partnership, I would say. Eric, thanks for joining us on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks for the question, Mike. Highly appreciate it. As we heard there from Eric, there is not a lot of capacity available on any mode. The Lodestar's Alex Whiteman did a great story early in September explaining how port congestion in Asia and not just China and Vietnam, but also Bangladesh is sparking a scramble for air cargo capacity. The Biggest shippers are gobbling up what capacity is available, leaving small firms floundering, which tends to be what happens. I'm guessing the same situation on the ocean side as well, Mike. Exactly. Um, I, I think if you're a big shipper, then you can navigate your way through this. I mean, we were speaking the other day about long-term contracts and effectively the carriers are really deciding who they're going to have a contract with. Um, the bigger the shipper, the better and the poor small guys are really having to scramble around and stay on the extremely expensive uh, and unpredictable spot market. Mike, you're talking about the, the contract rates there. If you're on the spot market on the air cargo side, as you would know, like for Ocean, prices have been elevated for months now. Just looking at those Baltic air freight indices, we're looking at $10 a kilo from China to the US, $6 a kilo into Europe, which as I know you've covered on the recently looking at the transatlantic trades where we've lost some capacity out there on the ocean side it's going into more lucrative markets the same we'll see on the air cargo side so that's something to watch that price differential china to the us china into europe on air freight 
because our operators, of course, they tend to follow the money, which is something we're going to be tracking on the Lodestar. So, Mike, that trans-Pacific trade, which is a big driver of freight markets this past year, particularly with such strong demand out of the US, that's still the key driver of the box market, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's where the, the main demand is, and that's where really the carriers are concentrating their energies. I mean, to a to a certain extent, as far as they can, because the, the problem comes, there's no ships available on the charter market. They can't charter them. If they don't have the containers, they can't use them. And, and obviously, with the congestion, when they get to destination, um, it's pretty pointless if you're just going to sit in the queue for a couple of weeks. I was following some of those Q2 financials by various manufacturers and retailers. Quite a few of them were warning about supply chain hikes, adding to inflation right across the economy, but also talking about delays that were going to weigh down on the bottom line, rising input costs. I mean, this is all something that's affecting pretty much every sector over in North America and Europe. But looking at one of those uh, sectors a bit more specifically, I asked New York-based Happy Chow, who is a fashion logistics expert and director of sales with Trans-Pacific Specialist OEC Group which is headquartered in Taiwan. I asked her how all this is affecting the ability of fashion retailers to get product into stores, given the highly seasonal nature of that business. And she said OEC was managing the various modal moons best as possible. Fashion, as you know, it's very seasonal. It has a seasonal requirement and expectation, especially with different fashion trends this year. So far for autumn and winter deadline, uh, the trend has been carried out. Shimmons actually arrived into United States or other parts of the world already. We've been giving advice to customer to ship early, ship early and plan early. We've also asked clients to add or pat more days on top of the regular ETA or transit time. And with those delays out of Ningbo that we've seen uh, on the ocean side, were you forced to put more product on air freight? There's definitely more increase from Ningbo or central China area in terms of air freight, being that Ningbo is located near Shanghai. Ningbo has its air freight demand, but nearby, because Shanghai is a major hub port for export on cargo freighters, there have been more increase at the same time airline frequency airport requirement has been changing daily at ningbo or shanghai pudong airport we always focus on the transport element of the supply chain but there's also capacity shortage in some of the factories out in in china as well are you sometimes finding it hard to get visibility on on when the product's going to be available definitely um factories want to be on time Client wants factory to be on time, but factory is kind of out of control between workers are coming back to work or being out of work due to COVID, which is still around. And at the same time, factories is hard to predict as summer months, they might have shortages on power or transportation might be affected during typhoon, which is during summertime in China and Asia, they have typhoon season, similar to our hurricane season. So you're, you're saying that you were finding solutions for your clients on the fashion side to, to help them hit that holiday season. How are things looking into 2022? Are you expecting some more predictability to return? Oh, Mike, I want to know also, it's, it's still unclear, to be honest when it can be back to normal or as close to normalcy as possible since COVID with new variant has been changing and affecting production ready day. All I can say is uh, ship early, plan forecast and ship frequent. Shipping frequent will allow you to have production. We were talking off air about my uh, lack of fashion <laughs> style, whatever you want to call it. Would your advice to consumers uh, who could need a slight refresh, would be, that be to also order early before Christmas? Definitely order early. Everyone wants to either on Zoom or be able to get together for a holiday looking fresh. 
for 2021 holiday season, uh, definitely order early between uh, international transportation and also domestic shipping. It's taking longer time. So you can't miss a holiday. You know, you can't be wearing fall winter 2021 in 2022. I'm wearing uh, winter 2009 in 2021, so. <laughs> <laughs> but we can address that. We can address that. I'll, I'll be ordering soon. Thank you very much. No, thank you. It's my pleasure speaking with you. Mike, are you concerned about whether you'll be able to get hold of the right fashion coming up for this winter season? I'm guessing you'll be getting your orders in early for the latest hoodie. Is that right? Uh, absolutely, Mike. During lockdown, I mean, I've been living and dying in the old hoodie. And I think it's desperately needs re replacing i'm not sure how that's going to go with the with the networking dues that i'm going to go to in london international shipping week but we'll have to see I, i'm very jealous that you're going anywhere i can't wait to get to a shipping conference or any sort of conference i just want to come back to where we are in in the market at the moment i i think we've got two states of mind shippers they're suffering shortages the high prices lots of uncertainty and when I speak to forwarders or container line employees who are dealing with shippers on a day-to-day -day basis, so these are the guys who are in operations, they're trying to find missing boxes, they're not having a great sort of work experience at the moment on trying to deal with, with all of this disruption and chaos. But for people who are higher up in some of those organisations, who are stakeholders in the solutions providers, the, the forwarders, the 3PLs, uh, and the lines, it's a different ball game. The top forwarders racked up some huge profits in the second quarter. In fact, it was a, a stellar Q2 for almost everyone in freight and logistics. What were the standout moments for you, Mike, when you were covering all of these results as they were coming in on the Lodestar? I mean, some of these numbers from the carriers is truly eye-watering profits in the second quarter. It's estimated that the combined profit of, of the liners in QT was somewhere around about 29 billion. And that's going to be even higher in Q3 as even higher rates and higher contract rates kick in. And it's now estimated that that could exceed 100 billion for the full year. Putting that into context, the combined industry profit for the past five years was around half of that number. So around about 50 billion. So in, in this last period, they're earning all of the money they made in the last five years. It really is quite staggering for those of us who've been covering this industry for quite a while. We've never seen anything like it. I picked up on some of those points exactly with a chap many listeners will have seen on TV analysing shipping finance, Randy Givens at Jefferies. I asked him how markets were reacting to these record profits across his container stock coverage area. Yeah, my good question. You know, we've certainly seen a very strong market from both the container liners um, as well as the container ship owners, right? The lessors. So when you look at it from a liner perspective, it's really mind boggling the profitability that we're seeing, you know, from, from Maersk, from CMA CGM. Uh, China, Costco, whomever, and really our top pick, Zim Integrated Shipping, right? Ticker ZIM. For example, let's just look at Zim. They, after the first quarter of earnings, they gave EBITDA guidance of around $2.5 to $2.8 billion, which is pretty hardy. About three weeks ago, following their 2Q quarterly earnings, they increased that guidance to 4.8 to 5.2 billion dollars and they view it conservatively right so you're going uh, basically a doubling of ebitda so it, it really is mind-boggling the numbers we've seen from the liner companies and that's why the the debt uh, at cma cgm that was trading at 50 cents on the dollar a year ago is now trading above par right and, and there's many other examples of that so it's really been remarkable the earnings infusion uh, that these liner companies and the windfall are harvesting, right? And we see every day uh, a news article about increased rates, especially on the Trans-Pacific or Asia to Europe or wherever it may be. It's, it's such a widespread, strong market um, that rates have really only gone in one direction. And that's even when we thought back in February, March, that rates were kind of toppy and would soften. And they did momentarily, 
And then it's been off to the races, right? So the liner companies are certainly making money hand over fist. The other way to play this market and another market strength that we've seen is from the container ship owner, lessors, companies like Danaus Corporation, ticker DAC, or Global Ship Lease, ticker GSL. So the container ship rates, it's, it's something I've never seen in the 10 plus years I've been covering shipping, have gone up every single week for 61 weeks, right? It has been a dramatic improvement since bottoming in June of 2020. Every week, 61 weeks, container ship rates have gone higher and higher. And no longer are the terms six months, 12 months. These charters are being booked for three years, four years, five years in some cases, and they're being booked early. Denaus, for example, was booking charters commencing, starting in the first quarter or even second quarter of 2022 last month, right? So it kind of, it really shows the strength of the market and how liners are willing to do whatever to secure tonnage, even if they have to book it for longer durations, even if they have to book it earlier in advance than normal. I think the key point for our listeners here on the Lodestar podcast, Randy, is what happens next? When does all this end? Or, or maybe it doesn't. On the container rates themselves, you could certainly see sustained strength uh, into Chinese New Year, right? You have the holiday shopping season coming up. Uh, you have ongoing congestion. You don't really have much fleet growth to alleviate things. Demand remains robust. There's still a lot of spending on services as well as inventory levels remain low. So there has to be some inventory restocking. So we're pretty bullish on the, the sector, especially the liner rates to at least February right, uh, of 2022 before the kind of Chinese New Year pullback. And on the container ship owner, the lessor charter rates, we can see those continuing to tick higher. There really is basically no available tonnage uh, until early to mid 22. And then the new buildings that were ordered really don't get delivered until late 2023. So the container ship lessor, the, the rates that they're booking could certainly go higher as well. So we really see a strong market here for at least the next few months, if not quarters. I mean, it's bullish on all fronts, Randy, then, whether you're talking about operators or owners, these huge profits, where do these cash reserves go? If we're looking at that these companies continuing to bring, bring in big profits over the next quarters and years with those long-term charters, We've seen these acquisitions on the 3PL side. Are you expecting maybe more consolidation in some of these sectors? Where's all this cash going? Maybe more equipment, maybe more ships? Yep, it's going to be a combination, right? It's a good problem to have. What do we do with all this cash? Um, and Zim has been saying for a while, they're looking at a couple things. One is just further delevering the balance sheet. They already paid off their series one and two notes for I think it was $349 million. They've also kind of prepaid a lot of their expansion. So they've just signed another five vessels, 7,000 TEUs on long-term charters from C-SPAN. They already have 10 of those 7,000 plus 10 of the 12,000, right? So they have 25 vessels on order, all with C-SPAN or now Atlas Corporation that are coming in the next few years. And they're paying up on those, right? They're paying early to reduce the ongoing daily charter rate for those vessels. So some of the cash will be used for that. Some of the cash will be used for investments in equipment. You know, Zim, they don't own any of their vessels, but they own almost all of the containers. So they want to buy further containers to help grow their routes and their volumes. And then they're also looking at some small M&A activity. They've already mentioned some of the intra-Asian lines that is a that would be a, a bolt-on acquisition. And again, Zim is not a huge player. I think they're number 10, 11, something like that uh, in terms of size. But there's certainly many smaller liner companies in, in Asia that they would look to acquire. So they've already mentioned some M&A and, and consolidation activity there. And then lastly, they're going to have a lot of cash that is going to be set aside for a dividend payment, right? They have a dividend payment policy of 30 to 50% of net income for the full year 2021 results that will get paid in February or March of 2022. So a lot of that cash, and we see that being somewhere between 900 million and 
billion dollars, right? And based on their earnings uh, ex- expectations for this year. So a sizable amount, they're also open to share repurchases. Although the, the share price has gone from $15 per share upon IPO to almost $50 just in the last seven months, it's still very cheap relative to its peers and relative to our forward valuations. So possible share repurchases as well. So they have a, a handful of options that they want to use their cash for. When you turn to the container ship owner lessors, like a Denaus or a GSL, they continue to make you know accretive secondhand uh, purchases. Both of them, Denaus and Global Ship Lease, have acquired older, sometimes modern, sometimes you know fifteen to twenty year old container ships on charter for a few years. So it really reduces their residual risk. So they're growing their fleet that way. Denaus just started a dividend policy uh, of $2 per year per share. Same thing with Global Ship Lease. They recently increased their dividend. And actually this morning, Global Ship Lease announced share repurchases, right? So they see the kind of attractiveness and undervalued share price uh, that GSL is trading at here. So they're buying back shares. So for them, it's going to be further accretive secondhand acquisitions, dividend increases, and possible share repurchases. Denaus already did a massive share repurchase in late 2020 at around $7 a share. Now the share price is $85 a share. So it's really been a remarkable run uh, this past year plus. And they're still trading at a cheap valuation. So all that being said, a lot of good opportunities and options for them to use the cash. Uh, and we think it will be spread out from Zim, from Denaus, from GSL, they continue to delever, really improve their balance sheets. And that's what you're supposed to do in an up cycle like this. What a fantastic analysis, Randy. Thank you very much for joining us on the Lodestar podcast. You're very welcome, Mike. Looking forward to uh, joining you again soon. Mike, one of the upshots of all this, as Randy suggested, is people have cash to burn. And we're already seeing some significant acquisitions. DSV panel, Pina taking over agility earlier this year was probably the big one. Kunra Nagel picked up Apex International, and last month, Maersk purchased two e-commerce logistics companies that were valued at nearly $1 billion. I mean, the list goes on. DHL bought Hillbrand for 1.5 billion euros. We've seen JJ and then owned by John Good Logistics. M&A activity in the US and trucking logistics space is pretty hectic at the moment, and there are still rumors that DSV might still be on the lookout for more acquisitions with DB Schenker, a rumored target. Now on the other end of that scale, we've got XBO Logistics, which recently completed the spin-off of its contract logistics division as GXO Logistics. So Mike, what's your take on what's gonna happen next from the container line point of view with all this excess cash washing around? Where are they gonna spend it? I mean, they, they, they always have their lookout on the radar for any M&A activity any acquisitions they can make but in in the first instance uh, as what we know is they're ordering ships and and that is in a massive way i mean this year so far the yards have 400 new builds uh, on order for about 3.5 million tu of capacity um additionally i mean these carriers have been hoovering up any ship that floats on the second-hand market. I mean, for, for example, MSC Shopping Basket has around 100 second-hand ships in it that it's purchased since last August. Um, hopefully, they'll spend their money wisely and invest it. But, I mean, what I think a lot of people would like to see is that they'll, they'll we want to see a carrier refreshingly invest a chunk of their billion dollar profits in its frontline customer services, which are virtually non-existent. Mike, that's a, a great summary. I mean, I'm very interested to see what container lines get up to these next yeah. few months. It's, uh, as you say, mm. some of their customers are not very happy, which is definitely something I'm sure my next guest, James Hookham at the Global Shippers Forum, will touch upon. Thanks for joining me today, Mr. Mike Wackett. An absolute pleasure. And my pleasure as well.
We've been hearing on this podcast about how forwarders are coping with various logistics challenges they're facing at the moment and how pretty much everyone providing supply chain services is currently racking up record profits. The missing piece of this puzzle is, of course, the end customers, the shippers. Filling that sizable gap for us today is someone many of you will know or know of. He has been a very outspoken advocate for shippers over the last two years in his role as director of the Global Shippers Forum. James Hookham, thanks for joining us on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's good to be here. James, over the last 18 months, we've heard a lot from shippers about the detrimental impact COVID-linked changes in transport and logistics have had on them. In previous episodes of this podcast, economists have advised that supply chain delays might slow economic growth and fuel inflation. A number of retailers and manufacturers in Q2 financials also warned that rising freight costs and uncertainty will impact bottom lines. Now, in that context, when we heard earlier in this podcast about the idea in the general media that shipping is in crisis, presumably you would take the contrarian view that this is not a crisis for shipping. It's a crisis for shipping customers. Well, actually, I think it's gone past a crisis, Mike. I think this is a full-blown catastrophe. I think the coming peak season is going to be devastating for a lot of particularly smaller manufacturing and importing businesses. The, the, the squeeze on capacity, the squeeze on cash flows, many of them are not going to make it. And I think they are beginning to realise that, that they are not going to have the stock to be able to sell and trade through the Christmas and holiday seasons in Europe and North America. And given all the pressures that they've already endured because of lockdowns and other COVID restrictions, I think, I think many of them are facing absolute catastrophe and annihilation. This has gone from a, um, a hiccup in the shipping industry, where we started from, to, to a full-blown economic crisis. And as, as you were saying, it's going to play out in, in the bigger macroeconomic uh, figures that we will see going into the new year. As you say, we're, we're hitting peak season. Now, for those retailers, manufacturers looking to get parts or inventory in ahead of the holiday season, what are the main pain points that those shippers are seeing at the moment in terms of managing supply chains? Is this about delays? Is it about record freight rates? Is it about both? I mean, can you give us any examples of, of specific shippers and how they're being impacted? Well, it's all of the above, Mike. It's uh, will, I, will I be able to get a booking on a ship? If it does, will it be collected? Will the ship actually call at the port? Will my cargo make it on board? And if so, when will it get here? And what will be the net price that I'll end up paying? And best of times, those are, those are open to somewhat <laughs> seasonal variability, but at, at right at the moment, they are complete unknowns. And the shippers that I've been talking to in the US, in Canada, in Europe, as, as well as the UK, they just simply cannot give their customers, who are obviously other retailers and other uh, sellers of these products, any kind of assurances about when these inventories, these lines, which are very seasonal in nature, will actually arrive in country and therefore be available for inland distribution and delivery into, into warehouses ready for going out to shops or indeed being available for online sales, catalogue sales and so on. Um, and it's not just a shrug of the shoulders and a, oh, well, uh, we'll be a few weeks late. There are contractual obligations, of course, and penalty clauses will be kicking in because shipments have not arrived on time. Therefore, there are additional penalties to pay on top of shipping rates, the surcharges and all the other additional uh, issues that you've been mentioning. So this is going to be an extraordinarily difficult time uh, for uh, importers. Equally, the exporters, the manufacturing businesses in the Far East and elsewhere, which are supplying these, these stores and so on, are equally going through the ringer just because they cannot get stuff delivered so they can get paid. So it's not looking good. I think anyone who's listening to this podcast or is a regular reader of The Lodestar will be fully aware of the record freight rates, the lack of equipment, scheduling failures, and some of the surcharges, we've run a number of stories on detention in Demurrage, for example, which, of course, are not very popular, would be an understatement. GSF issued a statement at the start of September, noting that rates are now in the stratosphere and alleging that slots are up for auction and service performance is in the trash. 
carriers would respond that the lack of space and surging rates are merely symptoms of an industry operating at full tilt under unprecedented pressure when there is simply no way of adding more capacity isn't all of this just a matter of supply and demand yes it is and and not enough supply for too much demand and that's what you've just described follows um doesn't mean to say we've got to be happy with it mike and as the people that end up paying for this at the end of the day shippers are asking questions about how this has come to pass clearly covid has got a, a big part of it but look that the, the press release we released at the beginning of September was highlighting some findings from our quarterly reviews of the market that we publish with MDS Transmodal. And demand for container shipping has just about got back to where it would have been on a trend basis had COVID not happened. So unbelievably, the, the rate of, of recovery of international trade has been so uh, rapid that we're back to where we would have been anyway, just on uh, continued trend growth. So if you like, the capacity crunch would have probably arisen anyway. And the question I think we're asking now is, well, where was the capacity? Why wasn't the capacity being deployed in anticipation of what had been pretty steady compound growth in trade in the run up to COVID and to which we've now got back on track with? So I think there are some bigger questions to ask even after all the effects of COVID have been taken into account. Is it, is it your view, therefore, that there's an element of market management and perhaps profiteering in all of this? I mean, the carriers would say that they've racked up massive losses over many, many years, and now this is purely just a case of the boots on the other foot and shippers don't like it. What's your take on that? Of course, shippers don't like it. Customers don't like paying excess money, for, for, for especially when the service is much worse than what they were paying before. But look, I think the issue here is that shippers have always felt that because of the um, exemptions and the concessions that regulatory authorities provide for the shipping industry, uh, this is always a slightly unfair market. And whilst I suppose they, they don't begrudge the profits that are being, are being made, our principal argument is not with lines so much taking the money. It is the competition authorities that have provided a market in which so much is open to question and in which it is very difficult to see a way in which the market is operating fairly in the balance to, to customers as well as to carriers. As you know, the GSF has long held that the consortia block exemption regulation in Europe, which allows for these concessions, is overdue for replacement with something far more appropriate and specific for, for this kind of market. And I think that the behaviour of the market over the past 18 months has, has only confirmed that this is not a fair market, this is not a balanced market. The regulators need to take closer interest in this. And of course, that's exactly what they've started to do in the US uh, with the Federal Maritime Commission. So I, I don't think we're pushing water uphill. I, th I think the writing's on the wall for, for the commission, and I think they're beginning to look increasingly impotent the longer they leave this and just dismiss it as, as another effect of COVID. As you say, the Biden administration has asked the FMC to investigate, to have a look at what's what's been going on in the container market, particularly detention and demurrage charges. Um, you've been lobbying for changes to the block exemption regulation in Europe, which for those who are listening in who don't know what that is, essentially it allows container lines to share operational data and form shipping alliances. You don't want this to continue. Is what you're really after, is it the end of the alliance system? No. Uh, and that's a very important point to correct because just because you end the consortia block exemption, you don't end the alliance. It's perfectly possible and practicable to operate alliances without a consortia block exemption. You just have to be a little bit more careful and a little bit more circumspect, perhaps, about the information that you do actually exchange. And let's be clear, in any other business sector, the information that passes between shipping lines by virtue of this exemption would be classified commercially confidential information. It, it would be the sort of thing that would, would be highly detrimental for competing businesses to discover. And if it were to be exchanged without the benefit of such an exemption, then you know, directors of companies end up in, in court, if not in jail, for, for this sort of thing. So th this is a highly privileged situation that the shipping lines enjoy. It is a sledgehammer to crack the nut. It's perfectly possible to operate still sharing agreements, which is after all, all alliances and consortia effectively are, 
without the need to blanket exempt the lines from exchange of, the, of this, this information. And it, is, and it is this lack of trust and, and uh, I suppose, respect for the customer's data, which doesn't in, instill great confidence in shippers. And therefore, when these sorts of market situations arise, then you do hear questions being asked uh, about whether or not this market is actually a fair one. Jane, I think I've probably been covering various EU policies to do with container lines for about 20 years, you know, the block exemption regulation. Many of the arguments against it have been made previously by shippers groups. What makes you think that there's a stronger case now for regulatory change and that regulators won't just write this all off as fallout from COVID with complaints against carriers from customers maybe being not taken quite so seriously. Why do you think the regulators might look at it differently now? Well, the graphs look a lot different, Mike. The, uh, the, the data, and this is one of the reasons why we're working with MDS Transmodal to, to track the market, monitor the market on a quarterly basis, because the evaluation criteria, as they call it, these are, these are the tests, if you like, that the commission applied to the market back in 2019 to decide whether to renew the block exemption or not. The evaluation criteria, or one of them, was that the benefits of vessel sharing agreements were shared e equally with, with the market. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult to justify um, an equal share of benefits given what's happened over the past 18 months. And look, we're not against vessel sharing agreements. No one wants half-empty container ships sailing around the world, not in a climate emergency and the, and the need to, to, uh, to operate uh, regular services and, and indeed operate profitable shipping lines. We're not, we're not against that in principle, but just when the market is so skewed and uh, acting with the benefit of these quite exceptional arrangements that the, the competition uh, authorities, not just in Europe, but in many, many jurisdictions around the world provide, our principal argument is just step back, have a, have a look at this market and see if we can't do something a little bit smarter, a little bit more 21st century, and something that's, that gives a, that, that more confidence to both parties that, that, that we can get this to work properly. Well, I think we'll have to see where regulators go with this. I'm not entirely sure. I thought something might have changed in 2019 and then nothing did. So we'll see. We'll see. If, if we look at this with a slight leap of imagination in a slightly different way, if you were placed in charge of global shifting and you had three random wishes in terms of the reforms that you would introduce very briefly what would they be no surcharges <laughs> this will be the vote of my members um we haven't spoken about surcharges but just just maybe let it rest we don't like surcharges mainly because of the the unpredictability uh, and, the, and the way they under, introduce un, unexpected costs and just make it very very difficult to, to accurately predict what the costs of transport are actually going to be um second thing would also be the competition arrangements which we just described but i think more important right now is that we collectively find a way to decarbonize shipping i think that's a real common challenge for shippers and carriers and all parties involved this is something which obviously affects my members as enterprises with a carbon footprint that they're attempting to to manage and reduce along with everyone else Carbon emissions from international trade are significant, as we know, and there are no easy solutions. I recognise that. I think there are some, some bold and brave attempts being made to try to find some, some cost-effective solutions. But I, th I think that we, we just need to hope that there is a breakthrough in one of these technologies that does at least give us a landing zone for this over the next sort of 10, 15, 20 years, because, because right at the moment there is no... Um, certainly no easy solution and there's no actual confidence around any of the various technologies that are being trialed we, we need to get that breakthrough somehow so that would be my third wish just if i if i may be slightly contrarian here we've talked about alleged profiteering by carriers isn't one of the big positives of all these massive record profits that lines are, are racking up is that they now have the ability to invest in in these really expensive new vessels that will be able to use new fuels, whether it's green hydrogen or, or methanol. We saw Maersk made a huge investment in new ships recently. Isn't this a benefit for shippers down the road that the lines have now built up these big war chests? <laughs> well, it's, it, <laughs> that's one argument for, for, uh, for, for making good profits at this time. Um, I would certainly imagine that's what shipping lines need to spend this money on. I certainly think it's a way that they can start to 
fund some of the research and development that's necessary. And given the windfall profits that they have made this year, I would hope that that's the last we hear of, of this idea that somehow the industry's research and development effort is funded by a precept on bunker fuel, which was a proposal the, the industry put to the IMO last November. I mean, there's, there's the, the aggregate profits made um, will, will easily fund this, this kind of activity. So I think that's a, that's a very obvious use of this cash. Um, and that's the shareholders of the shipping lines funding that R&D as, as opposed to just bankrolling it out of cash flow from customers. So that would, that would be good. On environmental issues, the IMO has been accused of dithering at best and corporate capture at worst. Do you see that particular organisation as the right organisation to drive towards a, a more sustainable container shipping industry, or is it more of a roadblock? I think people forget that the IMO is simply an agency which facilitates dialogue between national governments. It is the sum of its parts, and its parts are the same national governments that are disagreeing about climate change policy in every other forum, whether it's in the Paris Agreement or in other discussions about climate change. So it's a little unfair to say that the IMO is somehow struggling with climate change. It's struggling no more than any other uh, global institution is. But I hope that there is some enlightenment about the effect of some of the measures that are being discussed at the moment. I'm a little worried about the idea that if you simply impose a big levy on bunker fuel, as is being discussed and has been proposed by a number of observers over, over recent months, that somehow this will provide the incentive for shipping lines to invest and divert into uh, use of, of alternative fuels. First of all, as we said earlier, those alternatives aren't available in the scale or in the quantity that are necessary. And secondly, I'm just a little bit worried about how uh, increases in uh, price of fuel are not simply going to be passed on to the customer in, in BAFs and, and surcharges, not unlike what, what we saw only two years ago now with, with low sulfur fuel. And I think unlike low sulfur fuel, where there was an absolute limit of uh, sulfur that had to be used in, in fuel, there doesn't appear to be any sort of target for, for carbon emissions being set in this discussion. And I'm a little bit worried about how much of this is just coming customers' way as, as higher rates and higher surcharges. So your view is shippers want to participate and help with the decarbonisation of supply chain. That's good for everybody. Mm. But you're worried about the transparency of that process and the yes. mechanisms that are used to implement it. Yes. And the extent to which the customer is effectively having to fund the R&D effort as it goes along, as opposed to any other sector where shareholders' funds and, and other investments are used in, in order to, uh, to take that forward. And the, I suppose the costs, the depreciation costs and the operating costs of those technologies are then recovered from the market through adjusted charges, rates and so on. But not as simple, we, we, we need to raise some money to decarbonise the industry. Here's, here's $300 a tonne. A surcharge please. Yeah I think uh, transparency comes up quite a lot in our industry. I think we can safely say that there's been no lack of transparency from you today James. Thank you for sharing your very strident views on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks Mike it's been good fun and thank you for taking an interest in the activities of the Global Shippers Forum. Thank you. I'd like to thank our sponsor Forto for supporting this episode. An additional shout to the Baltic Exchange for giving us exclusive access to their fantastic range of regulated indices. And a big thanks also to my editing team, Tom Matthews and Karen Ball. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon.